Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Come to democracynow.org on November 8th to watch Democracy Now!'s three-hour midterm election night special. We'll be covering the key congressional races, which will determine the balance of power in Congress. Plus, we'll look at gubernatorial races and ballot initiatives around the country. Join us to hear the voices of activists, analysts, grassroots leaders discussing how the movements on the ground will go forward following these critical midterm elections. You can watch online at democracynow.org starting at 9 p.m. Eastern, Tuesday, November 8th. From New York, this is Democracy Now! In this regard, I have instructed the Defense Ministry to resume our participation in this work. However, Russia reserves the right to withdraw from these agreements if these guarantees are breached by Ukraine. Seven ships carrying grain departed today from Ukrainian ports a day after Russia agreed to rejoin a deal brokered by Turkey and the United Nations. Could this be the beginning of a new diplomatic effort between Russia and Ukraine? We'll speak to the International Crisis Group and a leading foreign policy analyst in South Africa. Plus, we look at a new peace deal to end the fighting between Ethiopia and forces in Tigray. But first, Egypt's launched a crackdown on civil society just days before the UN climate summit begins in Sharm el-Sheikh. Hundreds have been arrested. We were expecting that as Egypt hosts COP27, the security grip would be eased on all forms of political activism in Egypt and openness in the public sphere. But this has not happened. President Biden will attend the climate summit next week in Sharm el-Sheikh. More than 50 U.S. lawmakers have called on Egypt to release al-Abdel Fattah and other political prisoners. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Representatives of Ethiopia's government have reached a deal to permanently halt hostilities with people in northern Tigray region. The peace deal announced Wednesday capped a week of African Union-mediated talks in South Africa aimed at bringing an end to the two-year-old war that sparked one of the world's most worst humanitarian crises. Former Nigerian president Olusegun Obasanjo led the negotiations. The two parties in the Ethiopian conflict have formally agreed to the cessation of hostilities as well as to systematic, orderly, smooth and coordinated disarmament. All parties to the Tigray War have been accused of war crimes. The peace talks did not include Eritrea, whose forces joined Ethiopia's assault on Tigray. Eritrean troops have been accused of massacring hundreds of civilians and other war crimes, including widespread rape, sexual assault and looting. The United Nations says 5.2 million people in Tigray are in urgent need of humanitarian assistance. By some estimates, up to 800,000 people have died as a result of the war, which erupted 
erupted exactly two years ago today. We'll get the latest later in the broadcast. In Ukraine, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant has again lost its connection to the power grid after fighting damaged high-voltage lines. Ukraine's national nuclear operator blamed Russia for the outage and said the plant has once again had to rely on backup diesel generators to prevent a radiation disaster. Meanwhile, the U.N. Security Council's rejected a Russian bid to order an investigation into unsubstantiated claims Ukraine and the U.S. are carrying out military biological operations in violation of an international convention. Only China sided with Russia in approving the resolution Wednesday, with other Security Council members voting against or abstaining. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and other top diplomats from the G7 are meeting in Germany today to discuss support for Ukraine. The meeting comes after the Pentagon confirmed active-duty U.S. military are deployed inside Ukraine and have, quote, resumed on-site inspections to assess weapons stocks. This is Air Force Brigadier General Pat Ryder. My understanding is they would be well, uh, well far away from any type of frontline actions. Um, we are relying on the Ukrainians to do that. We're relying on other partners to do that. We've been very clear there are no combat forces in Ukraine, no U.S. forces conducting combat operations in Ukraine. These are personnel that are assigned to, uh, to conduct security cooperation uh, and assistance as part of the defense attache office. On Wednesday, the U.N. said some 14 million people have now been forcibly displaced since the February Russian invasion of Ukraine, calling it, quote, the fastest and largest displacement witnessed in decades. In Washington, D.C., a witness testified Wednesday that the head of the far-right Oath Keepers militia tried to contact then-President Trump four days after the January 6th Capitol riot to tell him it was not too late to use paramilitary violence to remain in power. Military veteran Jason Alpers told a federal jury he never delivered the message from Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes. Instead, Alpers says he warned the FBI about Rhodes' threats of violence. Jurors also heard audio of Stuart Rhodes declaring that on January 6th, quote, we should have brought rifles, unquote. Rhodes also said he would have killed House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. He's expected to testify today in the trial. With less than a week to go before midterm elections, President Biden warned political violence and lying politicians pose a growing threat to democracy and are putting the United States on a path to chaos. This intimidation this violence against Democrats, Republicans, and nonpartisan officials just doing their jobs are the consequence of lies told for power and profit, lies of conspiracy and malice, lies repeated over and over to generate a cycle of anger, hate, vitriol, and even violence. In this moment, we have to confront those lies with the truth. The very future of our nation depends on it. In his prime time speech at Union Station just blocks from the Capitol Wednesday evening, President Biden refused to name Donald Trump, but said the former president's lies about the 2020 election results led to violence against election workers and tragic events like the January 6th insurrection and the attack last week on Paul Pelosi, the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. According to The New York Times, over 360 70 Republican candidates in the midterm elections have questioned or denied the outcome of the 2020 election.
New emails shared with the House committee investigating the insurrection reveal Trump's legal team saw Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas as their only chance to help overturn Trump's 2020 election loss. The former president's lawyers wanted to orchestrate events so Thomas would be in a position to cast doubt on Georgia's vote count before Congress proceeded to record electoral votes on—to record electoral votes on January 6th. Meanwhile, Trump lawyer John Eastman warned against lying about having evidence of voter fraud in Georgia, writing, quote, I have no doubt that an aggressive DA or U.S. attorney will go after both the president and his lawyers once all the dust settles. In Wisconsin, Republican gubernatorial candidate Tim Michaels threatened permanent GOP rule if he wins his election. Republicans will never lose another election in Wisconsin after I'm elected governor. Michaels made the remark during a campaign rally Monday, raising fears he would further crack down on voting rights in the swing state, which has been heavily gerrymandered to favor Republicans and is already governed by a Republican legislature. Conservative Wisconsin lawmakers have introduced hundreds of bills this year restricting voting rights. Incumbent Democratic Governor Tony Evers tweeted in response, Tim Michaels is a danger to our democracy. When you head to the polls on Election Day, remember that we're fighting to protect our democracy, voting rights, and free, fair, and secure elections, unquote. Federal prosecutors have granted immunity to a close associate of former President Trump in exchange for his testimony. Cash Patel will appear before a federal grand jury to answer questions about Trump's mishandling of classified documents after the FBI recovered hundreds of records, including many marked top secret when agents carried out a search of Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in August. Patel previously claimed Trump declassified the documents when he left the White House. Meanwhile, some top strategists are expecting Attorney General Merrick Garland to pursue an indictment of former President Trump within 60 to 90 days after Election Day. That's according to the newspaper The Hill, which reports an indictment would most likely be for Trump's violations of the Espionage Act in connection with the Mar-a-Lago documents. The U.S. Federal Reserve has ordered the sharpest interest rate hike since the 1980s. On Wednesday, Chair Jerome Powell announced the Fed's fourth consecutive 0.75-point increase and warned further hikes may be necessary. Powell said the Fed's overarching goal remains bringing inflation under control, even as he acknowledged the rate increases now look likely to trigger a recession. My colleagues and I are strongly committed to bringing inflation back down to our 2 percent goal. We have both the tools that we need and the resolve it will take to restore price stability on behalf of American families and businesses. The Fed's actions have pushed mortgage rates to their highest level in 20 years and threatened to end a period of historically low unemployment. Liz Schuler, president of the FLCIO, Federation of Labor Unions, said, quote, working people should not be the target of lowering inflation. It should be corporations that are earning record profits. Israeli troops have killed two Palestinians in separate incidents in the occupied Palestinian territories. In the West Bank, Israeli troops shot and killed 42-year-old Daoud Mahmoud Khalil Rayon as they raided a home of a man accused of ramming his car into an Israeli soldier. Elsewhere, Israeli authorities in occupied East Jerusalem say they shot and killed a Palestinian man who stabbed a police officer, they said, lightly wounding him. This comes as Benjamin Netanyahu is set to reclaim his former role as prime minister after 
after a tally of late results from Israel's election showed his far-right coalition with a nearly insurmountable lead. Former Pakistan Prime Minister Imran Khan has been shot and injured during a rally in Punjab province. Khan's supporters say he escaped an assassination attempt but was struck in the leg. Imran Khan was six days into a high-profile journey from Lahore to Islamabad to call on the government to hold a snap election after he was removed from power in April. In Florida, a judge has sentenced Parkland school shooter Nicholas Cruz to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Cruz killed 17 people in a 2018 mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Ahead of Wednesday's sentencing, survivors and victims' families were given an opportunity to confront Cruz directly in the classroom. This is Samantha Fuentes, a former classmate of Cruz, a survivor of the massacre. You were a hateful bigot with an AR-15 and a God complex. You still are, minus the gun. You might have everyone else fooled, but not me, because this is personal. Racism is not a mental illness. Perfectly planned and articulated manifestos and plans are not characteristics of the sickly or the mentally unhinged. Samantha Fuentes and other survivors of the attack have become prominent gun control advocates, speaking in court yesterday. In Jackson, Mississippi, federal and state officials have declared the city's water supply to be in compliance with the Safe Drinking Water Act. This follows a boil water advisory across Jackson that lasted nearly seven weeks after flooding on the Pearl River led to a system-wide failure of the city's water supply in August. On Monday, hundreds of Jackson residents rallied outside the governor's mansion to hold the state of Mississippi accountable for the water crisis. The protest was led by Bishop William Barber of the Poor People's campaign. Majority black and brown and low-income communities are left to suffer the devastating consequences of crumbling, outdated water infrastructure. And in Michigan, residents of Flint have asked a judge to intervene once again in their long-running campaign to replace the lead pipes that led to the mass poisoning of Flint's water supply, as well as a deadly outbreak of Legionnaires' disease. It's the fifth time in six years community groups have asked a court to enforce an agreement requiring the city to take action. Melissa Mays, organizer with the group Flint Rising, said, quote, the people of Flint won't tolerate any more broken promises from the city, which is under a federal court order, to get the lead pipes out of the ground and somehow still can't get the job done, she said. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, we're going to get that mic up in just one second. Egypt has launched a crackdown on civil society just days before the U.N. climate summit begins in Sharm el-Sheikh. Hundreds have been arrested. This is Mohamed Latfi, the director of the Egyptian Commission for Rights and Freedoms. What we see is toughening of the security grip, even on the civilians passing by on the streets, and interference in their personal lives and breaching their privacy by forcing them to open up their mobile phones and inspecting their political views on social media. The Egyptian government is always concerned about its image, and the best way to improve Egypt's image is to improve its human rights record, because the international media will all be focused on Egypt during COP27. 
Rights activists say Egyptian authorities published guidelines limiting protests during COP27 to designated zones and will require 36 hours advance notice. This week, Egyptian authorities released Indian climate activist Ajit Rajagopal after detaining him on his march for our planet from Cairo to Sharm el-Sheikh. He described his detention. I was kept there for hours and hours and the whole night. I was not—they were not informed me well what is the charge against me, what are they going to do, what should I—how can I help them in the process? Nothing was being informed, and even—not even I didn't get any food from them as well, even water as well. This comes as the family of 47-year-old Egyptian political prisoner Ala al-Salami says they've been told he's died in prison after two months on complete hunger strike to protest his conditions. Fifteen Nobel laureates have signed on to a letter to world leaders attending the climate summit, asking them to, quote, devote part of your agenda to the many thousands of political prisoners held in Egypt's prisons. Most urgently, the Egyptian-British writer and philosopher Allah Abdel Fattah, now six months into a hunger strike and at risk of death, they wrote. The majority of the Nobel literature laureates since 1986 signed the letter. Al-Abda Fatah will begin a complete hunger strike for going even water on the opening day of COP27. He's already been on a hunger strike for more than 200 days. As we broadcast today in New York, his family is about to hold a news conference on efforts to free him. Meanwhile, in latest news, 56 U.S. lawmakers have sent a letter to President Biden saying Egypt's capacity to address critical climate demands is, quote, undercut by its refusal to allow the meaningful participation of environmental and civil society groups, activists, and those most impacted by the climate crisis. This is State Department spokesperson Ned Price being questioned Wednesday. Uh, then on Egypt, do you have any comment on the death of uh, Ala uh, al-Salami uh, in Egypt prison after starting a hunger strike uh, to protest uh, the conditions of his detention? And any reaction to, to the hunger strike that uh, Ala Abdel Fattah has uh, started today? Uh, so we are uh, closely following the case of Ala Abdel Fattah. Uh, we followed it throughout his pretrial, pretrial detention, uh, his, convict, his conviction, uh, and his subsequent and in, in current incarceration. Uh, we've raised repeated concerns uh, about this case and his uh, conditions in detention uh, with the government of Egypt. Uh, we've made very clear at the highest levels, including at the very highest levels, uh, to the Egyptian government. Uh, that progress on protecting human rights and fundamental freedoms, uh, that will buoy, it will bolster, it will reinforce, ultimately will strengthen uh, our bilateral relationship uh, with Egypt. For more, we're joined by Sharif Abdelkadus, Democracy Now! correspondent and a reporter for the Egypt-based Matamasar. Sharif, welcome back to Democracy Now! If you can give us the latest news, again, as we speak, um, Ali's sisters are about to hold a news conference in London, where they've been holding a sit-in for weeks. Can you talk about what's happening and the response of the U.S. government? Because President Biden will be in Sharm el-Sheikh at the U.N. Climate Summit on November 11th, next Friday. 
Uh, that's right, Amy. Uh, as we're going to air right now, uh, both of uh, Alet's sisters, uh, Sane and Mona, are uh, about to hold a press conference. Um, they last night, um, they've been camped out there since uh, the 18th uh, of October. And uh, last night, uh, James Cleverly, the uh, British foreign minister, did meet with them. Uh, he tweeted out uh, that he is working tirelessly to help secure the release of Ale. Uh, while this is encouraging that he finally did uh, meet with Sene and Mona after uh, so many days uh, waiting outside his office uh, for—and we have to remember Ale is a British citizen— um, and so are uh, Mona and Sana, and that's why the British government uh, is being called on to intervene. Um, that, uh, well, you know, this kind of language has been used before. Uh, Boris Johnson, when he was prime minister, spoke to uh, Sisi, uh, and we still haven't seen any kind of, of change. Ala uh, hasn't been granted a consular visit by, uh, uh, by British officials in prison. Um, and I think unless there's really top-level intervention, um, the new British prime minister, Rishi Sunak, is, is attending uh, the climate summit. Um, we'll have to see what happens. Ala... Uh, in a letter to his family, announced that uh, he was on a partial hunger strike for many months, uh, consuming just 100 calories a day, which is like a spoonful of honey uh, in tea, um, and that was helping to sustain his hunger strike. He uh, went, he stopped taking that on Tuesday, uh, so he's back on a full hunger strike, and on Sunday, he's going to um, essentially stop drinking water, and the body cannot last very long without water. Um, so Sanet is, um, if it gets to that point, if he's not released, Ale will do this. Uh, Sanet uh, is planning to travel to Sharm el-Sheikh uh, to the climate summit, um, if that happens, uh, as an official delegate. And so she will go and she'll hold an event on the 8th with the Secretary General of Amnesty International and the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch and uh, with the German climate envoy uh, to help put pressure uh, on uh, on the government to release Ale. Um, you mentioned in the lead that um, a prisoner, uh, Ale al-Salami, uh, was uh, just died in prison in the Bedr three so-called rehabilitation center, a prison, a new prison. Um, he was on hunger strike for 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 two months. And uh, he died, what they said was a medical neglect and because of his hunger strike. And we have to remember back in um, early 2020, an American citizen, Mustafa Esim, who was imprisoned uh, unjustly for six years in Egypt. Uh, he was an Egyptian-American dual national. Uh, he was on hunger strike for many months. He decided uh, to go on a water strike um, uh, on a Friday. He was taken to the hospital when he decided to uh, refuse to take liquids, and he was pronounced dead uh, on Monday. So this is uh, extremely serious. Um, you know, Alat's sisters say he's not bluffing. Um, he's fueled by hope to be reunited with his family and also by rage at the last nine years that have been stolen from his life. And I think he he very clearly understands uh, the timing of this and what he's doing. He's organizing all of us uh, from his prison cell. Uh, he's using his body, the only thing he has agency over, uh, to inject some sense of meaning into this moment with this climate summit um, and to spur us all into action. And he's, I think, done with prison. He's, he's, you know, he won't serve these five years. He's done with it. And he's trying to, I think, also organize... Uh, the meaning and the impact, if it gets to that, of his death. 
Um, and let me just end uh, this thing on Ale. You know, he wrote this letter to his family announcing his plans for the water strike. I'll just read a short uh, translated portion of it. He said, if one wished for death, then a hunger strike would not be a struggle. If one were only holding on to life out of instinct, then what's the point of a strike? If you're postponing death only out of shame at your mother's tears, then you're decreasing the chances of victory. I've taken it, and then he goes on to say, I've taken a decision to escalate at a time I see as fitting for my struggle for my freedom and the freedom of prisoners of a conflict they've no part in or they're trying to exit from. For the victims of a regime that's unable to handle its crises except with oppression, unable to reproduce itself except through incarceration. The decision was taken while I, while I am flooded with your love and longing for your company. Much love until we meet soon, Ale. Sharif, has anyone uh, been able to visit Allah? I mean, from what he says, he's longing for their company, so I assume not. Uh, is he able to see uh, a lawyer? And also, you said that high-level intervention uh, is required to secure his release. Has there been any response at all from Egyptian authorities? Ala gets, um, uh, as many prisoners do, uh, one visit by one family member once a month for 20 minutes uh, behind a glass barrier. They're not allowed to uh, touch him or hug him. He doesn't visit with lawyers. Only immediate family members are allowed to visit him. Uh, the Egyptian government has not addressed this publicly, uh, Ala's imprisonment. Uh, they point to his conviction uh, in December over for five years over resharing a Facebook post about torture in prison. That's his official charge. Uh, so we haven't seen that. But, you know, it's, it's a bit it's worrying also that we're, as you mentioned, we're seeing this intensified crackdown in Egypt uh, in the run up to the summit when the, the world's all the world's eyes are on Egypt as world leaders are heading there and tens of thousands of delegates and, and activists are, are planning to go. Uh, literally hundreds of people uh, have been arrested over the past week. Um, they've been arrested off the street. They've been arrested from their homes. They've been arrested from their workplaces. Um, at least 150 of them have been put into uh, pretrial detention on terrorism charges, all part of a massive case that's been dubbed in the media as the climate revolution case. They're all being asked about uh, these uh, protests that we've seen online calls for, uh, for plans for protest on 11-11, November the 11th. Um, and... You know, that will be while the summit is underway. Uh, there's a massive security presence uh, in Cairo and in other cities across the country. Police are randomly stopping people on the street, taking their phones, forcing them to unlock them, looking through Facebook and WhatsApp and looking for political content uh, and often detaining people if they see anything uh, they don't they don't like. Uh, as you mentioned, international activists are not immune to this. We, uh, an Indian climate activist who was trying to do this solo, uh, you know, climate justice march to Sharm el-Sheikh, was detained uh, overnight, interrogated for several hours. He called an Egyptian lawyer friend to come help him. When the lawyer came, the lawyer was detained and held overnight. Uh, they were both released. They recently just arrested um, a journalist, uh, Manel Agromar, who uh, had, you know, written some uh, critical posts on Facebook about the government. They came to her home, arrested her. Uh, she's currently, her whereabouts are unknown. So all, it's, all of this is kind of happening uh, in the run-up to the COP uh, and to this uh, summit, which many of the key 
climate uh, activists and environmental allies from Egypt, from civil society in Egypt, will not be able to attend. Sharif, where are all these arrests taking place? And uh, are people anticipating that these will continue even once the summit begins next week on Monday? The arrests are taking place across Egypt, uh, in Cairo, in Alexandria, in Ismailia, in Suez. Uh, it's kind of happening everywhere. There's a redoubled massive security presence on the streets. Uh, the security apparatus seems to be extremely paranoid about uh, these calls for protest on November the 11th. Uh, it's unclear if we're going to see protests on that day. It's very hard to predict. Clearly, there's a, there's a preemptive crackdown to try and prevent uh, anything. Um, and... And yeah, the government is clearly also very paranoid after it just floated uh, the currency. The Egyptian pound is at a record low against the dollar. Inflation is is way up. People uh, are are poorer. And uh, this comes, uh, you know, in a context where the answer to any problem with a citizen is incarceration. And so um, I think it's very telling that... that, we're seeing more increasing calls for the release of political prisoners. Uh, we saw this letter by 56 lawmakers in the U.S. Uh, we've seen people in the U.K. Uh, come out. We've seen multiple uh, organizations, civil society, call for the release of political prisoners. There's an editorial in the Washington Post today. Um, you know, this is, uh, as, as Naomi Klein uh, said, this is more, this cop is more than just greenwashing a polluting state. It's greenwashing a police state. Um, finally, we're going to end with the words of Abd al-Fattah. Uh, you interviewed him, and we also have interviewed him on Democracy Now! But, Sharif, very quickly, if you can just tell us who he is, why one uh, Nobel literature laureate after another has signed on to this letter, 56 Congress members and senators have demanded that Biden call for his release— uh, Alez, uh, he's a technologist, um, a writer, uh, and an activist, and he emerged really uh, in the 2011 revolution as a key thinker and organizer um, and an icon uh, of change. Um, he is, uh, he's been imprisoned for much of the last uh, nine years, uh, mainly because of his ideas for the versatility of his mind and, um, and, hi- and what he stands, and he stands as, as a symbol uh, for, uh, of 2011 and a symbol of change. So I think uh, th- that's why there's been so much campaigning around releasing him, because if someone like him can be released, and he's being imprisoned um, uh, to set an example for others, basically, that, uh, you know, this is what happens when you try and fight for change. So I think his release would also mark a significant step forward uh, for change in Egypt. Well, Sharif, we want to thank you for being with us. Also, Sharif Abdel-Kudus will be joining us as we cover the Sharm el-Sheikh UN Climate Summit. Um, Uh, the week after next, the second week of the COP, and people should tune in for a week-long coverage. Sharif Abdel-Kadus, Democracy Now! correspondent, reporter from Adamasar, usually based in Cairo, Egypt. Uh, We're going to turn now to the words of Allah himself. Um, Allah recently published a book, uh, the name of the book, You Have Not Yet Been Defeated. 
Um, he has been jailed for almost all of the last decade since the 2011 Arab Spring Tahrir uprising. We spoke to him in 2011. Uh, this was after he was first arrested in order jail by a military court, then briefly released before being imprisoned again. He described the inhumane conditions he faced in prison. The first five days, I was um, I was put in a pretty bad um, prison. Now, all prisons, well, all prisons in the world are bad. Like you know, losing your freedom is is, um, is quite tough. Uh, but also, all prisons in Egypt have, are in, in very poor conditions. And uh, so, even if they don't torture you, just spending one night there is already you know. Um, Uh, a bit too much, but I was in a particularly bad prison, and um, they made sure to put me in a particularly bad cell and to deny me, you know, any comfort. So, for instance, I was in a, in a complete darkness for five days. It was uh, very filthy uh, and very crowded. There was nine of us in a two by three uh, meters uh, cell, uh, having no access to water or toilet except 10 minutes per day. Um, You know, so basically, they knew they couldn't torture me because of the solidarity and the media attention. So they just made sure to try and use every other measure um, to, you know, you know, put me at discomfort uh, or at a psychological pressure. Now, every other person who was arrested in in, um, in the Mespiro um, incident were tortured severely, and torture is still very systematic. In you know, in police stations and in prisons and so on, but they knew that they couldn't torture me. Allah Abdel Fattah speaking to us in 2011, soon after the um, uprising in Tahrir. We'll be broadcasting from the UN Climate Summit in Egypt. Tune in for that, and also tune in on November 8th for our three-hour election night special. We'll be broadcasting live starting at 9 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, we will look at the possibility of negotiation and ceasefire between Ukraine and Russia. Stay with us. Listen to me, Bahamza Namira. 
This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Secretary of State Tony Blinken's in Germany today for a two-day meeting with the other G7 foreign ministers. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is expected to top the agenda. The meeting begins a day after Russia agreed to rejoin a deal allowing for grain shipments from Ukraine's ports. The Ukrainian government said seven ships carrying agricultural products were able to leave Ukrainian Black Sea ports today. The original deal to reopen the ports was brokered by Turkey and the U.N. When the grain deal was first reached in August, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres called it, quote, a victory for diplomacy. Well, we turn now to look if other diplomatic steps could be taken to end the war. We're joined now by Richard Gowan here in New York. He is the U.N. Director for the International Crisis Group. With these latest developments and the G7 meeting, uh, Russia rejoining this grain deal, what do you think is the possibility of Russia ending this war through negotiation with the world community and Ukraine? I fear that we are not much closer to a real end to this conflict. It is positive that Russia has rejoined the grain deal. I think that it only suspended its participation for tactical diplomatic reasons. But it remains fairly clear that Vladimir Putin believes that he can win this war or at least do enough damage to Ukraine and to Ukraine's infrastructure to bring Kiev to the table in a much weakened state. So I fear that we face a, a prolonged conflict uh, despite some small diplomatic success. In, uh, in your experience uh, monitoring negotiations uh, where the U.N. plays a critical role, what kind of role do you foresee for the United Nations uh, once uh, the two parties and uh, other involved parties uh, are ready uh, to negotiate? Well, Secretary General Guterres has been very cautious in his diplomacy over Ukraine. But he has actually established a significant diplomatic role. He's brokered humanitarian agreements uh, with Moscow, and he did play a leading role in brokering the Black Sea deal. So he is one of the very few diplomats who has shown that he can get concessions from Vladimir Putin this year. I think that means that if Moscow does edge towards um, peace talks and if Ukraine wants peace talks, Guterres could play some sort of facilitating role, either through shuttle diplomacy between Moscow and Kiev, or through using the UN's mediation services to at least push talks forward. I, I don't think that the UN can do this on its own. I think that you're going to need other players, such as Turkey, uh, to play a facilitating role in peace talks. But Guterres does seem to have a, a diplomatic toehold in this war in, in a way that we didn't necessarily expect back in February. We weren't sure that Russia would take the UN seriously at all. But for the time being, uh, there is a small amount of space for the organization in the war. One of the most contentious issues uh, is, of course, the territorial one uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Some say that Russia, in fact, has the greatest incentive to uh, hold talks now uh, towards a ceasefire uh, in the hopes that it can retain the territory that it's uh, taken 
since uh, the invasion began on February 24th. Now, when such negotiations take place, it's often common to suspend territorial issues in the interest of obtaining a ceasefire. Do you see that uh, happening in this case? Well, I think that the Ukrainians are very sceptical about uh, accepting a ceasefire because they fear that Russia will pause hostilities, but it won't pull its troops back from the territory it has seized since February. And there is also a risk that Russia could agree to a ceasefire and then take a few months to improve its military position, uh, rearm some of the units that have suffered quite badly on the battlefield, and then go back to war. So I think that Kiev will only accept a ceasefire if it sees that Russia is really willing to give up a lot of the territory that it's grabbed. But this is something which will, I think, be based on what happens on the battlefield. It's not something which... Uh, the UN Secretary General or even the UN Security Council can define. I mean, sadly, this is going to be decided through force of arms. Last month, Russian President Vladimir Putin said the world should reconsider the power structure within the United Nations. Perhaps it's worth thinking that the structure of the United Nations, including its Security Council, could, to a greater extent, reflect the variety of the world's regions. The state of things in the world soon will depend on Asia, Africa, and Latin America, much more than it is thought today. This growth of their influence is undoubtedly positive. Uh, Richard Gowan, you're the U.N. director of the International Crisis Group. Your response to that, and also, you must have been following this kerfuffle in the U.N. Congress, where the Congressional Progressive Caucus, the largest caucus in Congress, um, wrote a letter to Biden saying you can continue the weapon sales, but push for negotiation next to them. Uh, Pramila Jayapal, the chair of the caucus, then withdrew that. We spoke to one of the members, Rohana, who said he absolutely supported that letter. So, if we get your response to both? Well, firstly, on the question of reforming the UN, the irony is that Vladimir Putin thinks that the US dominates the UN. Um, But a lot of American diplomats and European diplomats would say that the real problem with the Security Council is that Russia is using its veto to block any action on Ukraine, much as Russia used its veto repeatedly over Syria. So, actually, everyone agrees that we need some serious reforms to the UN. Joe Biden actually said this when he visited the General Assembly in September. And right now in New York, there are lots of seminars, there are lots of diplomatic discussions about the need to revitalize the UN system and make it fit for purpose, uh, you know, 77 years after the organization uh, was founded. But it is very, very hard to get to real UN reform. Uh, the, the hurdles, the diplomatic obstacles to rewriting the UN Charter are, are huge. And so I think President Biden will talk about UN reform. President Putin will talk about UN reform. But sadly, we're stuck with the, the UN we've got. As for the uh, kerfuffle, as you describe it, in Congress, I think that for a lot of observers outside the U.S., including uh, observers at the U.N., um, this was a a rather petty distraction. I think that most um, 
Leaders in the non-Western world, in Africa and Asia, do feel that there should be some sort of peace process and that there should be peace talks uh, between Russia and Ukraine. That's not a controversial position uh, around much of the globe. And so this virtue signaling and this uh, rather obscure political fighting in, in Washington, um, you know, it, it seems like a distraction from what a lot of the world wants to see. And finally, Richard, before we end, uh, we just have 30 seconds. What about the fears around a nuclear escalation and the fact that there aren't sufficient lines of communication between Russia and the U.S.? This is a concern that U.N. officials have flagged very strongly. They take it very seriously. But the U.N. view is that there is actually some communication going on now uh, between the U.S. and Russia on nuclear issues. Um, the U.N.'s focus is still more on the grain deal and on humanitarian issues. That's where the U.N. has some leverage today. Well, Richard Gowan, we want to thank you for being with us, U.N. Director of the International Crisis Group. You mentioned Africa. Coming up, we're going to South Africa to look at the war's impact on Africa. Stay with us. Esmani, Listen to Me, by Hamza Namira. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. As we continue to look at the war in Ukraine, we turn now to focus on how the war is impacting the continent of Africa. Joining us from Johannesburg, South Africa, is Adebayo Alokushi. He is Distinguished Research Professor at the Witts School of Governance in Johannesburg, previously served as director for the African Social Science Council and the U.N. African Institute for Economic Development and planning. Um, we welcome you to Democracy Now!, Professor Elokoshi. If you can respond to the Russia's war in Ukraine and what you feel needs to happen, what you feel as you follow the debates around the world and look at how the U.S. covers um, what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, um, what your frame is, how different it is. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I think, like, uh, uh, most people around the world, uh, the wish, the overwhelming wish in Africa would be for this war to stop. Um, it's uh, uh, needless uh, damage to property, uh, destruction of lives, um, as well as other consequences uh, which are felt far away from the immediate theater of war, uh, such as uh, uh, issues of food security, 
um, and food price infl inflation, which are of big concern to uh, many countries of the continent. Um, uh, there is a wish for much more uh, investment uh, in diplomacy, um, a toning down of uh, uh, the war rhetoric on all sides, um, from Brussels to Moscow to Kiev to uh, Washington, uh, and uh, uh, an opening up of all of the channels, uh, both through the United Nations and other influential parties uh, that might be able to bring the belligerents to a negotiation. Professor uh, uh, Olukoshi, could you speak uh, specifically about the extent to which many countries in the global south, including, of course, in Africa, are increasingly dependent, have been increasingly dependent on wheat and gas uh, and grain supplies from Ukraine and Russia, and what the impact uh, has been so far that you're that we've already been witnessing in many parts of the world, uh, including where where you are in, in South Africa? Well, I think with, with regard to uh, those specific uh, concerns, um, over a period of time, I'll say in the last 30 years or so, um, we've seen uh, for most African countries uh, a growing dependence uh, on particularly the supply of wheat and uh, fertilizers, agricultural uh, activities on the continent uh, coming from primarily Ukraine, uh, and uh, in the case of fertilizer, to a great extent from Russia. Uh, and the disruptions which the war created, um, immediately uh, fighting started, uh, rebounded uh, directly uh, on most countries in terms of uh, shortages of bread, uh, severe increase, uh, sharp increase in the prices of uh, uh, all commodities connected to um, wheat, um, and also, of course, uh, uh, a problem with farming communities uh, awaiting the supply of fertilizers uh, for the farming season in a context where, for most of the continent, uh, agriculture is mainly dependent uh, on rain, on the rainy season, uh, and therefore, uh, in a sense, very sensitive uh, to any disruptions in the supply chain uh, for fertilizers. Um, and you will recall that in the context of that, because, I mean, obviously uh, there is a correlation between food and politics uh, on the continent, uh, as probably elsewhere around the world, uh, that in the immediate aftermath of the uh, outbreak of the conflict, uh, the chair of the African Union Commission, uh, uh, Mr. Faki, and the uh, chair of the Assembly of Heads of State, uh, the Senegalese president, uh, Maki Sall, uh, took a trip to meet with both uh, President Zelensky and uh, President Putin uh, in order to make the appeal uh, for uh, um, supply lines to be re-established uh, and, and therefore relieve most African countries of the food price uh, pressures they were under. And if you could speak also about the historic role of uh, uh, the Soviet Union following the end of the Second World War in supporting uh, anti-colonial efforts in much of the global south, the formerly uh, colonized world, and how that position, if you've seen it, alter uh, uh, since the dissolution of the Soviet Union and how this war is viewed in that context, the context of decolonization. 
Well, thank you very much. I think um, this is a piece of history that is sometimes neglected by many commentators who express shock and surprise, for example, that uh, so many African countries uh, abstained from the initial votes uh, in the General Assembly or in some cases even outrightly voted uh, against the resolution to condemn Russia. Um, the truth is that in the um, uh, period after the end of the Second World War, anti-colonial struggles uh, in Africa began to gather momentum uh, following particularly the independence of India in 1947. Um, Russia, like China, actually became key allies uh, to the nationalist politicians uh, who underwrote the African independence struggle. Um, and doing so in a lot of cases uh, in the face of resistance and opposition uh, from what is today described as the West, uh, broadly defined, uh, of countries, particularly in Europe, uh, that either wanted uh, to slow down the independence movement or even to resist it outright, um, as was the case among some of the leading political figures uh, in power in Europe, uh, the UK and France, uh, particularly at the time. Uh, and uh, for the settler colonies of the continent, uh, where there were armed liberation struggles, uh, both training and equipment uh, mostly uh, came from China and Russia, uh, to help prosecute the uh, liberation and liberation struggle uh, against uh, settler co uh, uh, co colonialists. Uh, and this is particularly true for Southern Africa, um, uh, including South Africa, where I'm located. So a bond was built over time um, and a relationship uh, of uh, mutual trust uh, was developed. Uh, and even as countries began to gain their independence, uh, although um, the United States, for example, did offer um, a lot of uh, support by way of uh, scholarships to students, uh, the first generation of post-independence African students uh, to uh, pursue higher education in, in, in various parts of uh, the U.S. Uh, it is also important to note that this was matched uh, substantially by the kinds of uh, offers of support uh, in training. Uh, for technical, vocational, and uh, advanced higher education uh, by Russia uh, to a lesser extent China. Uh, and in the case of Russia, even establishing a particular uh, university, um, the so-called, uh, which was called the Friendship University, Patrice Lumumba Friendship University, um, uh, that also I think has struck a chord with many Africans. Uh, I'll add here, just because of the contemporary interest, that part of the broad range of cooperation between newly independent African countries and Russia um, within the framework of the Soviet Union, as it existed at the time, uh, also included military training. Military training uh, that may not have been on the scale of, say, Russia or USSR, India military cooperation, uh, but certainly in uh, a specific number of countries, um, I would say that uh, uh, not an insignificant number uh, of senior officers uh, underwent their advanced training uh, in Russia, and Russia also uh, supplied uh, an important part of their, of their weaponry. So there is an affinity of a political uh, and military nature, um, which goes back uh, to the post-war period. Professor, and, uh, which to play a role in shaping attitudes 
uh, an opinion. Uh, particularly in political circles. Professor Olakoshi, before we end the show, we wanted to get to this new peace deal between Ethiopian forces and Tigray to end a devastating two-year war. The agreement announced on Wednesday after a week of African Union-mediated talks in South Africa, where you are. The United Nations says 5.2 million people in Tigray are in urgent need of humanitarian assistance. By some estimates, up to 800,000 people have died as a result of the war, which began two years ago to day. Uh, your comments on the deal that was reached? Well, a big relief and uh, an earnest hope that the two sides will adhere to the agreement. Um, this is a war which um, it has been seen by most Africans to be highly regrettable. Um, Ethiopia, as a country, uh, was at the forefront uh, of uh, uh, progress in terms of economic uh, growth and transformation. Um, you'd recall that for uh, a period of almost a decade, uh, Ethiopia ranked amongst the fastest growing countries in the world, uh, sometimes even competing with China. Uh, and this war has been uh, disruptive uh, of that whole process, uh, in addition to um, uh, exacting all of the costs in human life uh, and damage to property that we have seen. Um, and uh, I hope that uh, in the context of the realization by both sides that it might in the end uh, be the case that there will be no clear victor uh, uh, from this conflict, uh, that they would sit down to work out the kind of political solution that will accommodate the concerns of all sides, uh, the concern by Ethiopia to keep a country united uh, and uh, uh, and, uh, you know, the territorial integrity of the country uh, respected uh, and the concern by the Tigrayans for minority rights uh, to be upheld uh, and fully recognized in the Constitution. And how will it be enforced? Well, a lot will depend on uh, the political will on both sides. And as I said, I hope, first and foremost, that uh, there is a realization now on both sides and a lot of pressure has been piled uh, on both Addis Ababa and Nekele, uh, from within Africa, from the African Union, uh, from key and influential voices uh, across the continent, as uh, also there has been pressure uh, from the United Nations uh, and places like Washington and Brussels, on both sides, uh, to at least ceasefire. Um, there's, of course, the question of Eritrea, which also has to withdraw uh, its troops from uh, Tigray, uh, as part of this process. Um, and hopefully the African Union will set up a monitoring mechanism immediately uh, that will enable it to um, see the extent to which uh, the parties uh, are acting in good faith uh, in accordance with the agreement which they have reached. Uh, some tough concessions have had to be made, uh, I would say particularly by the Tigrayans, um, but they are also uh, backed into a corner presently. Uh, and the cost of the war has been uh, uh, particularly heavy uh, on the people of Tigray, uh, that um, it will only make sense uh, for, for them to continue to show the goodwill um, uh, that will sustain the ceasefire and open the uh, pathway towards um, uh, constitutional and broader political negotiations. Uh, Professor, you mentioned Eritrea. Of course, they play a critical role in this war, but they were not included in the negotiations. We just have 30 seconds. If you could explain the significance of that. 
Well, I mean, officially, Eritrea has not admitted to being a party to the war, even though we all know that there are Eritrean troops uh, fighting uh, alongside the Ethiopians. Um, I imagine that uh, to the extent to which uh, Addis Ababa, uh, which is in a strategic alliance with Asmara, um, adheres to the agreement that has just been reached, uh, it will indeed be able to um, uh, um, transfer the, 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 the the full effects of uh, the ceasefire uh, to the authorities in um, Asmara. Well, Adebayo Olokoshi, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Distinguished research professor at the Witt School of Governance in Johannesburg, previously serves as director of the African Social Science Council and the UN African Institute for Economic Development and Planning, speaking to us from Johannesburg, South Africa. Again, tune in on November 8th for our three-hour midterm election night special. We'll be broadcasting live starting at 9 p.m., Eastern. You can go to democracynow.org for more information. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for a video news production fellowship and a people and culture manager. Learn more and apply at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Stay safe.